Masks are off. Theaters and indoor dining are back. Life seems to be returning to normal. And yet, the highly transmissible and maybe more deadly Delta variant is spreading quickly, accounting for half of new COVID-19 cases in the United States and causing surges in nearly half of all states. New studies demonstrate the effectiveness of vaccines against this new variant's immune evasiveness properties, which pose a serious threat to partially vaccinated or unvaccinated individuals. Education and factual information haven't gotten us even halfway to a fully vaccinated population. States have tried $1 million lotteries and other incentives, yet just 1% of the population is becoming vaccinated every week. We need to move on to something else, employer mandates. That was Zeke Emanuel, a University of Pennsylvania oncologist, bioethicist, and much, much more, reading from the first opinion essay, Vaxxed or Axed, to protect patients, every healthcare worker must be vaccinated, that he wrote with his colleagues, Matthew Guido and Patricia Hong. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. The demands of innovation are evolving faster with each new discovery. At Cytiva, we evolve with you using flexible, modular solutions to shorten the time to the next milestone and to market. Learn more at Cytiva.com slash cell therapy. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com forward slash cell therapy. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative opinions and perspectives about the life sciences writ large. Welcome to the podcast, Zeke. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, it's always a treat to talk with another native Chicagoan, though my guess is that since we grew up on opposite sides of the city's Mason-Dixon line, the chances of us meeting as kids at a professional baseball game would have been slim. Well, I'm not so sure because my best friend, Skippy Shine, had season tickets to the White Sox. So I would occasionally go to the White Sox. And I will admit, Skippy's parents were well off. You know, when I went to the Cubs park, the bleachers were a buck. And I used to go to the bleachers because I couldn't afford anything else. But I would go and sit in the first uh, the first base boxes with Skippy Shine's parents, but they were usually night games. Cool. And I, I have to admit that into my dotage, I still have not yet been in Wrigley Field. <laughs> oh, you really don't cross that Mason-Dixon line in Chicago. So as, as you alluded to in the excerpt you read from your first opinion essay, life in the U.S. feels like it's kind of returning to normal. How has the rollout of vaccines helped that along? Well, once we got past somewhere around 35, 38% of the population vaccinated, um, you saw just huge drop in cases, huge drop in hospitalization, huge drop in mortality, and transmission went down because of the vaccinations, uh, we think. And as a result, uh, there were, you know, because fewer cases, people felt psychologically different. And you heard all over the place a comment I just heard yesterday, you know, I'm done with COVID. <laughs> you may be done with COVID, but last I knew COVID might not be done with you. 
Um, and so I, I think that made a huge difference. And it made people, especially people who are vaccinated, feel comfortable um, engaging in previously, you know, unengaged activities, dining with others, you know, as I say, going to various places. And now we've had, you know, Bruce Springsteen uh, doing his stuff on Broadway. Are you concerned we might be in for a rude awakening and that things could get worse again? Well, in parts of the country, we have a rude awakening, right? I mean, if you go to southwestern uh, Missouri, uh, you have hospitals filled with COVID patients because they haven't been vaccinated and the Delta variant has spread like wildfire there. And I'm very familiar with southeastern uh, Missouri because, uh, as you may know, I, I make chocolate um, and I like to make high-end chocolate. And one of the country's, uh, if not the country's best chocolatier is located in Springfield. So I've been to Springfield several times to make chocolate and to I've stayed there um, multiple days because uh, you can't do chocolate in one day. And I, I've been in that community and uh, it, it's really heartbreaking for me uh, because I have great affection for the people who live in Springfield. Uh, but for reasons of, you know, disinformation, uh, skepticism, politicization, uh, the vaccine rate, vaccination rate is very low there. And the consequence is the COVID rate, uh, especially with the Delta variant, is extremely high. Uh, and, you know, people get sick and people die, unfortunately. Yeah, rates are really quite low. I was looking at Johns Hopkins vaccine tracker today. And just under half of Americans are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. And rates range from 68% in the District of Columbia to 34% in Alabama. You know, while that's overall promising, there, there are many countries like Uganda and Syria and Vietnam with under 1% of people vaccinated. Do you see vaccination rates in the U.S. as a problem? You mean the high or the low vaccination rate? <laughs> uh, Patrick, uh, we have to get uh, higher vaccination rates and we have to get them more uniformly across the country. Uh, if we don't, you know, people are dying because of this. This is not like, well, uh, we've spread some disinformation like fertility uh, can be compromised from the vaccine or the vaccine causes COVID-19 uh, or you're going to have to pay for the vaccine. All of those are false pieces of information. Um, and when we spread them, people become, you know, take them on as real and uh, don't get vaccinated. And we have to stop that. We have to get up higher to really return to normal. Uh, but the world needs a lot more vaccines. And, you know, I've advocated that the United States should send its vaccines overseas. We should send it to hot spots uh, or places that are we can anticipate are becoming hot spots. Uh, we have to vaccinate 5 billion people against this virus. Vaccines have long been a naughty issue in healthcare. People have, you know, for years resisted, sometimes aggressively resisted vaccination for themselves or their kids. Do you think there are differences in the vaccine resistance or hesitancy with the COVID-19 vaccines that there are for things like measles or other more common vaccines? You're asking me like I'm a historian and then a sociologist. But let me say, you know, one, one, of, the, one of the periods I actually have studied and written a little bit about is uh, 1720 and 21. Uh, and that wasn't, it was inoculation at that time. It was smallpox inoculation. Right. And uh, 
interestingly to me, that was a situation where Boston was being hit really hard by a uh, outbreak of smallpox and a doctor uh, named Boylston uh, uh, with encouragement from the clergy, from Cotton Mather and Increase Mather, uh, actually began uh, taking uh, some of the poxes from smallpox patients and uh, purposely inoculating other people. And actually among Boylston's first patients was a slave he owned and his son. Um, and then Boylston kept accurate data and showed that, in fact, the inoculated people died very, very rarely compared to the uninoculated people. Um, controversy swirled around this. It turns out that Ben Franklin, um, because his brother was publishing a paper and wanted to increase circulation, uh, attacked Cotton Mather on this matter and was against immunization. But Ben Franklin came around to the virtues of immunization and himself had been uh, uh, immunized. Uh, so it's been controversial since the start. But I would say, if you think about the 50s, um, you and I are old enough uh, that, you know, uh, we know that people lined up for the polio vaccine. Absolutely. It wasn't a controversial issue. We did the tests in school children uh, and schools, you know, just vaccinated away uh, the kids and parents were relieved. They didn't have to worry that their child might be on an iron lung or might uh, be paralyzed because of polio. And the polio vaccine transformed life. And part of the problem, I think, is we've had success with vaccines and people have become inured, uh, except when we have occasional outbreaks like meningococcus or measles because people haven't been vaccinated. What's different about the current situation is that in the past, when we had these outbreaks like measles outbreaks at Disneyland, people rushed to get vaccines. They really rushed to protect themselves. And now we, ha we have COVID, we have effective, maybe super safe, super effective vaccines. And people are, you know, no, I'm not taking And they're free. I mean, what I can't get is they're easily accessible, right? You can go to almost any pharmacy in the country and get it. They're free. And free is not cheap enough for a lot of Americans. Go figure. I cannot get the psychology here, except that we now know that getting a vaccine, not getting a vaccine is not about the facts. It's not about protecting yourself. It's about group identity. And group identity, uh, if we've learned anything, group identity is not a rational thing. And that is the problem. It's become a badge of I'm in this group, not that group. And that overcoming that is it's not an educational effort. It's not a persuasion effort. It really requires some more fundamental underlying social transformation. Well, that's an interesting way of looking at it and also poses the question, can we ever overcome that? Um, I do think we can. <laughs> uh, it depends what you mean by overcome there, Patrick. It's ambiguous. <laughs> overcome that by getting our vaccination rate up or overcome the polarization in American society. If you mean overcome it by getting our vaccination rate up, I do believe we can do that. That was the whole point of my uh, essay for you, which is, look, if we had employer mandates beginning, as we argue, with the healthcare uh, uh, industry, which has 17 million employees and is dedicated to keeping people healthy, if we began there and we moved, and I do think that if we could get 
most uh, healthcare facilities and institutions and employers to mandate vaccines. I think it would uh, uh, spread throughout society. Um, then I do think we're, we could get up towards uh, 70, 75%. Um, short of that, I don't think that the efforts, as valiant as they are, and believe me, I, I, I see the administration trying everything possible. Um, again, making it free, going door to door, uh, making it accessible at every pharmacy, trying information campaigns, having pop-ups, um, you know, uh, sending vaccine to physicians. There's almost nothing they haven't tried. Um, and yet we're at 500,000 people getting vaccinated per day, 3.5 million per week. Um, it's hard to see how, you know, that that's 1% added every week, getting to 75%, uh, assuming that rate continues. And it's actually been dropping, uh, you know, it's, a, you know, maybe next year. Mm. You know, in your essay, you and your colleagues wrote, and I'm quoting here, it's one thing for a retail worker not to get vaccinated. It's unethical and appalling for a healthcare worker. Why the difference and, and why unethical? Well, I, I would say pretty simple. Um, you know, if you look at uh, the doctor's Hippocratic Oath, you look at the ANA uh, dedication, you look at- uh, That's the Nurses Association? The yep. Nurses Association, you look at the pharmacists' uh, positions on this, they're all committed to doing what's right for our patient, keeping our patient healthy, protecting our patient's health, and promoting their well-being. It's hard to see how you can do that if there's a chance that you might have COVID, even asymptomatic COVID, and spread it to your patient. It's hard to see how you don't have an obligation to get vaccinated for the benefit of your patients, some of whom, many of whom are going to be immunocompromised or uh, for some other reason can't take the vaccine, and you've got to protect them. And that does seem to me uh, that's that's an ethical obligation. None of us were forced. No one held a gun to our head. You're going to become a doctor. You're going to become a nurse. We voluntarily went to school, studied hard, went into the healing professions. Part of the healing professions is you take a, a uh, uh, oath to put the interests of your patients first. That's an ethical obligation. Retail workers, not like I have an oath to put the interests of my <laughs> person who happened to walk into the store looking at a pair of jeans first. Uh, so I think that's a funda fundamental difference. And by the way, I don't think that is limited to only the high paying doctor nurse parts of the hospital. That's true for phlebotomists. It's true for the respiratory therapists, the occupational therapists. It's even true for the, the uh, um, uh, environmental services. We're there, you know, when we're working in a hospital, yes, you may be working for a paycheck, but you're also working for the good of others. And that I think is a, and, and that's true if you're doing home health care. It's true if you're working in a SNF. It's true if you're working in a physician's office. I just think, what do we do here? You know, when, when I, I got, I trained in the AIDS era when AIDS was just starting. There was a raging national debate about do we have an obligation to treat our patients? And, you know, we ended that debate. That's why doctors and nurses and all the other healthcare workers, we just, they just worked right straight through COVID. We ended that debate. We all knew that we had an obligation to treat the sick and that you couldn't say, well, my health, it might, it might be in danger. No, that's not, not the way it goes in healthcare. Are there any indications that you've seen that the people saying no to vaccine or maybe later to vaccine varies by type of healthcare worker? Well, it is true that among doctors, it's 
you know, sky high vaccination rates and much more variable in other uh, parts of the profession. I think home health may be the lowest. It's something, the last data I saw was something like 26% of home health. Uh, work. Wow. Yeah, it's, it, it's uh, I think, shockingly low. And, uh, you know, they go into houses, but they're still taking care of people as patients. And remember, in Hippocratic times, the doctor went into houses because there were no hospitals. So, you know, treating people at home is still treating people and still caring for them and still providing health care where your obligation is to promote their well-being. So in, in uh, say, nursing homes and other long-term care facilities where vaccination rates are really high among the residents, why is it necessary to have the workers vaccinated? Well, we know that uh, even though vaccination rates are high, many of uh, older people don't mount the same kind of immune response to the vaccine and aren't as well protected and are more still more vulnerable even after their vaccination. They are a kind of immunocompromised uh, patient. Um, and the workers, we've had a lot of outbreaks. You know, we're still having something like 150 to 200 patients a week die uh, because of uh, getting COVID. And most of those or many of those patients have been vaccinated. And the reason is that they haven't mounted a sufficient immune response. Um, and by the way, there are more than 250 nursing homes and long-term care facilities where the employer has mandated that the workers are going to get vaccinated. And guess what? They get vaccinated. They don't quit. Well, that's the big worry, isn't it? If, if I require my employees to do this, they're going to quit? Well, I think there's uh, a lot of uh, excuses we can make for why we don't mandate it. You know, one I've heard a lot of, and I'm sure you have too, is it's an EUA. It's not a uh, full uh, approval by the FDA. First of all, I think, you know, we're, we're, we now know that's a uh, distinction without a difference or whatever that <laughs> phrase is. There's no real difference here. It is going to get full approval, the, the, uh, certainly the mRNA vaccines in the next uh, few weeks. I think that's simply a stall technique. The EEOC, uh, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, has said you can mandate the uh, uh, vaccine uh, even with an EUA. So I don't, so from a legal standpoint, that's not really important. Uh, and then, yes, there is a worry, you know, in this tight labor market, uh, some people will quit. Uh, but the real question is, you know, uh, if employment at skilled uh, and long-term care facilities is uh, not very desirable, uh, because they're not paid well, the work environment, maybe we ought to upgrade those things too. Maybe there's a whole collection of things that have to be done. Um, and maybe you ought to give people paid time off in case they do get some side effects. And believe me, I know plenty of people who've got, I, I, when I got the vaccine, I didn't have side effects. I had a sore arm for a couple of hours, but I know many people have had some serious side effects and been laid low for a day or two. And, you know, people should, should, uh, their employers, if, for the long-term good of everyone should say, all right, we're, we're going to give you a, a day off and the, the day after you get the vaccine so that uh, uh, you can recuperate. Bringing vaccines to people also seems important. I mean, home health care workers are pretty poorly paid, don't get much time off. Um, we published the first opinion essay by uh, Boston University epidemiologist Julia Rafeman and colleagues who basically said, we need to bring vaccines to essential workers. And these seem to be essential workers. I totally agree with that. And actually, I think in uh, March or April 2020, I said, listen, 
train up all these contact tracers. Let's have them responsible for a geographic area. And when we get a vaccine, we'll have them vac- go door to door to vaccinate people. And, and we can do it that way. They do it in other countries that way. Hmm. We didn't, but now we're going to be going door to door so that we take away the barrier, the access barrier. I agree. And one of the things we suggest in our essay is bring it to the work site. Uh, if it's a hospital, if it's a physician's office, if it's a laboratory, bring it to the work site. And by the way, say, you know, not just the, the worker, but the worker's family can come and get vaccinated too. Hmm. Make it as easy as possible. Absolutely. You want to reduce every barrier possible. Look, I think we've made it very, very accessible. Nonetheless, there's some little element, especially for workers who have to work two jobs to make ends meet because they don't pay enough. Um and so I think this is one, uh, an additional effort we can make to, to sort of solve that problem. Would a COVID-19 vaccine mandate be something coming from out of left field or are there precedents for something like that? Well, there are precedents from, uh, as you know, there's a Supreme Court case from the early uh, 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 20th century about mandating smallpox vaccines, having the state of Massachusetts mandate smallpox vaccines. Um, so we, we've had that this experience. And plus, let's let's be honest, in a lot of healthcare facilities, mandate influenza, mandate hepatitis B vaccinations, mandate other vaccinations. Um, so it's not unheard of for employers to mandate vaccines. We're seeing United and Delta, I guess, two airlines mandating new employees get vaccinated. Um, so there's plenty of precedent for it. Um, and I will just say I'm proud that at my institution, both the University of Pennsylvania Health System has mandated workers get vaccinated and the university itself mandated not just students, but faculty and staff get vaccinated. Um, now, there are obviously exceptions, medical uh, uh, reasons being an exception, an acceptable reason not to get vaccinated. That 98% of the population that way would be covered by a, an employer mandate and It's not just at universities that can do it. If Wall Street is going to call back its people to in-person, you know, in in those big open layout plans, they should mandate it. That that just seems to me to be, you know, basic, uh, let's protect the workers. We don't want to spread uh, the vaccine here. Uh, I was going to ask about, should this be extended beyond healthcare? Oh, I, I, I absolutely. I think any place that's bringing workers back and going to have them indoors, and especially if they have open workspaces, you know, food process workers where you're going to be close and you cannot uh, uh, distance people and the ventilation is not great, they should be vaccinated. And we could go down, you know, first responders. I shouldn't have to think if that policeman is coming up, does he or she, uh, is he or she vaccinated? Uh, I think our military, you know, we now, I guess, have the first military base in Alabama that uh, has got a uh, mandate. So days after Joe Biden was elected president, you were appointed to his coronavirus advisory board. And that was at a time when the number of COVID-19 cases was about 100,000 a day. It was on its way to its peak of 300,000 a day just two months later, right before Inauguration Day. During that time, the FDA issued its first emergency use authorization for the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-9 vaccine. Vaccine rollouts began. That was quite a challenging period. Who were some of the people on that team? And what were you all trying to accomplish? First of all, it's an illustrious team. 
uh, and I was super honored to be among them. You know, uh, Rick Bright, who had been head of uh, BARDA, you know, Atul Gawande, Mike Ulsterholm, Lou Borio, Celine Gondar, uh, uh, David Michaels, uh, Jill Jones. I mean, we, we, we just had just an amazing, and could keep going down, an amazing group of people. I learned from them every meeting. And, you know, there were a lot of issues to confront getting the vaccine rollout out, making sure production was up, th- talking about therapeutics, talking about diagnostics and testing and make sure, making sure that was available. So there were uh, huge numbers of issues that we were asked to give advice on and to talk to you know, representatives of companies and organizations and uh, healthcare facilities to understand the nature of the problem and, again, advise the incoming administration about how to approach some of these issues. It must have been stressful and challenging. Was it also kind of fun? I don't know about stressful. Uh, You felt a lot of responsibility to help the new administration get it right for the country. I think that was important. And as I said, you know, it was a fantastic learning experience, you know, trying to understand how to think about problems that I might not have been expert in. And I, I think, you know, For me personally, every time I learn something uh, new, it's uh, usually uh, I enjoy that. So let's say the group hadn't been disbanded upon Biden swearing in. What do you think it might have said about vaccine mandates? Oh, I know the answer, at least from some of them, because we many of us still talk on a weekly basis, actually, uh, because we have found it so productive and look forward to to that group. And uh, I would say uh, we're all over the place. (laughs) As you might expect, I'm on one extreme. And, you know, I've been on the mandates for healthcare workers now for for several months. I've, I've, I've been pushing internally at my own organization, but also I've expressed in various places that I do think in healthcare, I can't see the rationale for not having a mandate. There are others who think mandates could be counterproductive and just um, get people to dig in. I'm not so sure I agree with that. Well, Zeke, I'm a sucker for a strong opinion, deftly stated and clearly stated. <laughs> so I, 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 I've been honored by that because you, you do uh, publish me on an occasion. <laughs> so I appreciate your sharing your views on this issue. Uh, and I've really enjoyed the conversation and learned a lot from it. Thank you, Patrick. And maybe we'll go to a Cubs game together in Wrigley Field. <laughs> I'm on it. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And please put podcasts in the subject line. And if you have a minute, I'd really appreciate you reviewing or rating the podcast on whichever platform you use to get it. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. Thank you.